to begin our message today, I would like to, first off, have you turn to a copy of the Pillars of Truth. You'll find this uh, Pillars of Truth in your pew or a pew next to you there. And I want you to open up to page 91, page 91. What is the Pillars of Truth? Well, you see on the cover, cover there, uh, this is just an old expression of solid good doctrine. Doctrine is an understanding of what we believe the Bible teaches. Uh, it comes from the 17th century and it's handed down to us and faithfully preserved by faithful churches and faithful ministers throughout the years. And I want to look at page number 91 here because it really is a great introduction and it zeroes in to what we're going to be talking about today, and especially for you young ones um, that are here. I want you to look at question number 39 that's on page 91 from the Catechism. And I want you just to get a snapshot of the big picture of what we're going to be talking about in Hebrews 11 verse 7 regarding a man named Noah. The Catechism question asks here, what are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? And notice with me the answer. The answer is the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are assurance of God's love. Remember, we're talking about Noah. It's assurance of God's love. A peace of conscience. Joy. Joy in the Holy Spirit. Increase of grace. And a perseverance. A perseverance therein unto the end. Unto the very end. Beloved, we're going to be looking at another example of God's enduring faith in the life of a servant named Noah. And Noah, because he was justified, because he was adopted by God, because he was increasing in grace and sanctifying, he benefited from all of those things which helped him do what we're going to learn about today in the text that he did. So now let's look here at Hebrews chapter 11. Turn your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 11 with me. As we continue our study verse by verse of this great catalog of past believers who exhibited what we're identifying as enduring faith. A faith that makes it unto the end. Let's back up to chapter 10, verse 31, and I'll read down to verse 11, chapter 11, verse 7. So 1031 down to 11:7, that helps to set the context nicely of where we're going today. The word of the Lord says, "It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but Call to remembrance the former days in which, after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions, partly while ye were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while ye became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward, for ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. How are you going to make it to the end? Notice the transition. The just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. 
Now faith is the substance of the things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that the things which are seen were not made of the things which do appear. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaks. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found. Because God had translated him, for before his translation, he had this testimony, that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. And may the Lord bless the reading, the hearing, and the understanding of his word. Dear Church, I'd like to start off today's message with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Listen to what Spurgeon says. Quote, It is a great thing to begin the Christian life by believing good and solid doctrine. Why, some people have received 20 different lowercase g gospels during their many years, and it is difficult to predict how many more they will have to go through until they reach the journey's end. He continues to say, I thank God, however, that very early on I was taught the true gospel and I have been so perfectly satisfied with it that I do not want to know or trade it for any other. Well, I start off today's message with this wonderful quote by Spurgeon because it demonstrates a very simple but also a very vital point going into today's text. And it is this, that the gospel of justification by faith alone, through Christ alone, which has been the theme all through the book of Hebrews that the inspired writer is wanting them to never lose grasp of, to maintain a firm grip on, to defend unto the end. Beloved, it is the bedrock of the foundation of enduring faith. The type of faith that is going to help us, like Noah, like Enoch, like Abel, make it unto the end. The type of enduring faith that no matter what may come against it, will maintain a hopeful, a courageous, and a dependent trust upon the object of that faith, which is Christ and Christ alone. Once again today, our attention comes back to this captivated scene here in Hebrews 11 where there's this long list, right, of faithful saints from the past. These who did not know the name of Jesus, but nonetheless, they believed upon Him because He was the announced, the promised Messiah. And so while they didn't know His name, uh, Abel, Enoch, and today we see Noah, they believed upon the Messiah that was promised. Now last time we was in this text, a couple weeks ago, we considered the life of Enoch, whose example of enduring faith demonstrated for us many things And among those things, I tried to draw out that Enoch lived with a purposeful existence that was part of the fabric of his enduring faith. You see, Enoch's enduring faith had with it the recipe of knowing why he was saved and what he had to do for God in his gift of salvation. 
And it made it much more than, a, than just thoughtlessly going through the motions. But rather, Enoch demonstrated for us that he had a faith that is thoughtful to the times in which he lived. And also, he was very mindful of, by God's providence, who was in his life, his sphere of influence, and those around him. Well, today, the inspired writer draws our attention once again to this long catalog of people in Hebrews 11, to a very notable figure in Scripture, one who lived not only before the great flood, but also lived after the flood, Noah. If Enoch's example encouraged us when we learned about it to live a spirit-filled life of purpose, then I pray in verse 7 that Noah's example in his life of enduring faith demonstrates for us as God's people today to possess a steadfast hope, right? With the bedrock of our justification, adoption, and sanctification. A bedrock hope and also an unshakable courage as we are called to move forward in our lives as well until the end. The title of my message is very simple. Noah's Enduring Faith. Noah's Enduring Faith. A faith gifted by God and continually relied upon by Noah. So, looking at your Bible here in Hebrews 11.7, how do I propose that we unpack this text? By faith, Noah being warned of the things not yet seen, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. I have three simple headings I want to unpack it. The first is, let's look at, Many of you probably know this, some may not. Let's look at a biographical and a historical context of Noah. This man who's being talked about in verse 7. And then we're going to look at the first few words by faith to recognize after the biographical and historical context. The second heading will be that Noah, he was a sinner saved by grace. How did he get this faith? And lastly, we're going to look at that Noah was, as we see in the text, and we'll dig down into it, Noah was a courageous saint. A courageous saint. Well, once again here, the inspired writer draws our thoughts and our attentions to the dawn of human history to this man named Noah. Well, who was Noah? Noah was the ninth descendant from Adam through the godly line of Seth, who was not from the line of Cain. So that makes Noah the ninth descendant from Adam, about 1,056 years after the world was created. So the world's created, you have the fall in the garden, and then about 1,056 years go by, and we come to the ninth descendant of Adam, Noah. That makes him the third descendant of Enoch, who we talked about last time we were in this text, in verses 5 and 6 describes. You had Enoch, you had Lamech, you had Methuselah, and then you had Noah. I think it helps you if you look at that chart on the back of the order of worship because what it does is it brings this ancient history, God's history, God's story to life. You see that these people, uh, these um, uh, uh, saints that we're talking about, they're, they're, this, this isn't mythology. Uh, this isn't made up, you know, oracles passed down as uh, mythology. This is, these are real people. Uh, they, they really existed in time. Noah lived, if you were to do the math, about 950 years. Uh, Scholars tell us he lived between 2950 B.C. to 2350 B.C. And I want you to turn with me in your Bibles. We're seeking to learn a little bit more about Noah, who's being talked about in verse 7 today, to see that even his name is very important for us to understand. So let's turn back to Genesis chapter 5. Uh, Genesis chapter 5 to Genesis chapter 9 is where you're going to get most of the biblical data about Noah. There's a few other places he's mentioned and he's talked about, such as the text we're in today. He's mentioned briefly in the book of Ezekiel, and he's mentioned briefly in 2 Peter. But let's look back here to the place where you're going to learn most about Noah in Genesis chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, regarding Noah's name. What we're going to learn here is further edifying when you see that it's exactly in harmony with what we have seen in the book of Hebrews thus far. That there's one redemptive story, there's one Messiah, 
and there's one church who believe in that Messiah. Prior to the cross, they didn't know His name. He was Messiah. After the cross, we know His name, Jesus. We're all one people of God by faith in that Messiah. Look with me here uh, how Lamech, Noah's father, was part of the believing elect. We see here, uh, go to verse 27, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. And Lamech, this is Noah's father, lived 182 years and then he had a son. I don't know about any of you, but you know that first year of child rearing, right? That's, that's pretty difficult. But uh, if you were tackling that task at 182 years old, these, these people were cut from a different cloth. But we see here Lamech, Noah's father, has a son at 182 years old, and he called his name Noah. Now notice what he says about Noah, his son. And this is in connection with his name. This same, referring to his son, this same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. Now, the name Noah in the original tongue means it can be literally translated as rest. And so we see here Lamech is having a son, remembering the promise And he names his son Rest, and he's the one that's going to bring us comfort from the curse. From this passage here in Genesis chapter 5 regarding Noah's name, many commentators rightly observe that Lamech is expressing, is he not, faith. He's expressing by naming his son Rest, and that he will bring us the promised rest, He's expressing belief in what we learned about when we were studying verses 5 and 6. Faith in the proto-evangelium. Fancy Latin term meaning the first pronouncement of the gospel. Now remember, we're 1,000 years from the scene in the garden. And what happened after the fall in the garden? There was the first announcement of the promised Messiah. There recorded in Genesis 3.15, God said, I'm going to put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And he noted, God did in his promise of the Messiah, that the seed of the woman would what? He would bruise the head. The head is, the, is, a, is, a, is a vital part of our bodies. So the serpent was going to be defeated by the seed of the woman. And here we see Lamech naming no arrest, expressing he believes 900 some odd years, 1,000 some odd years after that promise had been announced. Lamech is still trusting. Lamech is still exhibiting enduring faith. And he names his son Noah. I believe that this Noah, he's going to be the one that our Creator God, the one true living God in the garden, promised would come. Now Lamech, in the chapter of history that he's in, he's going to soon find out, isn't he? that Noah wasn't the one. But Lamech was given just enough faith in the proto-evangelium, in the first pronouncement of the gospel, to have hope, to still have continued trust in the promise of the one true living God. But what Lamech would eventually find out as Noah grows up, as time and society develops, Lamech would eventually find out, ah, my son, his name, his life, and eventually, Lamech won't see this, but even the covenant that God makes with Noah, it's all but a shadow, it's all but a type that's reminding us and continually pointing us to the anti-type. So if Noah's not that promised Messiah, but only by his name, a shadow, a type of that promised Messiah, then we must still long for, we, our eyes are still fixed upon, our hearts are still hoping and trusting in God's proto-evangelium, the first gospel promise that Messiah would still come. This is important, friends. This is important because it helps us to see that God, all throughout redemptive history in the life of Noah, 
in the life of Abraham, who's going to come next, in the life of David, in the life of all these great saints that we're going to read about. What makes them great is not them in and of themselves, but it's the faith that God gives them, which then enables them to look outside of themselves to what? The promised Messiah who the one true living God promised someday would come. That's what compels them. That's what motivates them. That's what makes them when they... And you guys know the history of some of these people. Making some disastrous choices and mistakes. That's what helped them get up, shake the dust off, and keep moving forward because the promised Messiah has not yet come. I'm still coming and praying and asking God to help me to not lose hope. It's been a thousand years. I haven't seen him. Every child born through the line of Seth, we think it's going to be him. It ends up not being him. Oh, but Lamech, him there having a son. You could imagine the news when he first heard he was going to have a son. Oh, we're going to have a son. Not a daughter, we're going to have a son. Perhaps it's the one. Noah, he will give us rest. He will give us rest. Well, Noah's born to Lamech. And he's born now, as we move away, kind of away from his biographical sketch, he's born into a society, isn't he? He's born into a historical context in the Bible, which is significant for you to grasp if you're really going to understand why he's in Hebrews 11.7. So let's consider a little bit about the societal context in which he lived. Now, when we were in verses 5 and 6, looking at Enoch, I was very purposeful in drawing out the reality of the intense darkness of the times, this pre-flood period, these times that Enoch would have lived in. And I did that because as Enoch's translation, his rapture up to heaven, occurred, Whether you could believe it or not, after learning some of the things that we talked about, whether you could believe it or not, society even got worse. The kings of men on the earth at that time grew even darker. They grew even more wicked. And the reason isn't hard to understand. Because at the same time that the godly line of Seth are having children still with enduring faith, hope, and promise, and naming their children, such as Lamech naming Noah, Noah, at the same time, Society is growing darker because the descendants of Cain continued to master the art and the science of shaping iron and weaponry, which would allow them to successfully go throughout the kingdoms of men on the earth at that time and dominate them and subdue them and to crush them with their worldview and with their idolatrous gods. These descendants of Cain through the evil Lamech. There's two Lamechs in the book of Genesis. There's the good one through the line of Seth. And then there's the evil one through the line of Cain. These descendants of Cain, they would go around and they would convince people that you know the thing that uh, the good Lamech and Methuselah and Adam's still alive at this time, that they're still over there talking about, you know, that's not true. It's been a thousand years. Nothing's happened. This cursed ground. If, if, have you ever heard this? How could a loving God allow such things to happen? How could a loving God cause such things to happen? You see, that was the worldview. That was the festering heart of bitterness that Cain and his descendants outside the camp of Noah and Lamech and the good guys were populating all around them. Now, there are some, if you haven't explored this, there's some creative Christian authors who attempt to describe kind of the lay of the land during the times of Noah by providing detailed descriptions of the various tribal kingdoms that existed under the evil Lamech and his favorite son, Tubal-Cain. Many of these novels attempt to capture the gross idolatry and the contempt for any restraint against lawlessness, perversion, lustfulness, or wickedness. This was the lay of the land in Noah's time. Most of them climax in a description of what these tribal kingdoms looked like in Genesis 6-4 we have that peculiar verse that says there were giants in the earth in those days and also after that when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men and they bare children to them the same became mighty men 
which were old men of renown. Now, while the details of these dark times can only be left to sanctified imaginations, look at Genesis 6, 5 and 6. God's word sums up the whole state of affairs rather simply. He says there, or the Bible says, sorry, God saw that the wickedness of man, this is the historical context where we learn about Noah, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Friends, notice the exclusivity here. Every imagination, not some, not 50%, every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. And notice this description of like a fountain just flowing constantly. It was not only evil, but it was evil continually. And then we have the description in verse 6. Reminiscing to what we learned in Jeremiah today, it repented the Lord. It grieved the Lord that He made man on earth and it grieved Him at His heart. It made God happy. God wasn't glad. It grieved Him at His heart. This was His reaction to the devastation that sin has brought about. Now in these verses right here in Genesis 6, there's what we call anthropomorphic language. Um, It's just human emotions applied to God. He was grieved in his heart. And the Holy Spirit's doing it to help us as humans understand just what a state of affair this was. How gross, how destitute the kingdoms of men really were. This is the best way to describe it. It's as if it were, God wish he never even made man. It's such a wreck. It's so dark. It's so filthy. The guilt is so high. The text says every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Everywhere Noah and his family would have looked around, they would have saw those who were rejecting the one true living God. The moral law which was passed down by birth in conscience but rejected with a closed fist, this was who was ruling. This was who was dominating the land. No matter they would move over to this part of the region of the territory or move to that part of the region of the territory, they were still faced with these inhabitants. They still had to contend. They still had to be around this group of people. What a dark, what a sad, what a despicable time in all of creation that we have in Genesis 6 five and six described. I don't know one of us in here who would wish upon our worst enemy to be put on a plane and dropped off in a society such as that. Only our darkened understandings could remotely begin to want to, never would want, never really seriously would want to consider this, of what was going on in those communities. You think some of the things especially you young ones, my heart breaks for you because you are living in a country that's much different than your parents lived in. Of course, there's always been the fallenness of man on display, the pride of sin on display. But the degree that it's being seen now, it's in your face all the time. I wouldn't want to place any child in that if I had a choice. Ah, but the wisdom of God The wisdom of God, friends, is displayed here. Because in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this cesspool, is born a man named Noah. In the midst of this historical context, which is so dark that what's going on now in our country can't even hold a candlelight to it. Okay? He he brings Noah. A man who God is going to change and transform And he is going to use for God's own power and demonstration of his glory. What does this teach us, beloved? It teaches us this very powerfully. That God's timing is always the right timing. It may get a lot darker as it did in Noah's days. No one could imagine from Enoch's time 70 years later in Noah it could have got any darker, but it did. And it could get a lot darker here. But remember, God's timing 
is always the right timing. Scripture repeats this over and over. So this is the historical context Noah comes into. How is God going to use him? Well, let's look back here at Hebrews 11.7. Laying down the groundwork of his, who he is, the historical context of redemptive history, where he's from. Let's look now at our text in front of us today. Hebrews 11.7. God brings Noah into this world, into this cesspool. And verse 7 says, By faith Noah moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. Church, prior to looking at the courage that's displayed in his actions of preparing the ark, condemning the world, so forth, let us first understand the significance of how these actions, how these actions which display an obedience on the part of Noah, how they all began to, in the first place. And we see it in the words right there. By faith, Noah. It all began with faith. It all began with faith. You don't have to turn there. You were just there. But this is how it, this is how it happened. Genesis 6, 8-9, we have this record of this faith happening to Noah. And it's the same way it happens to all of us, friends. It says in verse 8 of chapter 6 of Genesis, Noah, remember the historical context he's born into? Noah found grace and the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And verse 9 says, Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. Now notice the structure there of what I just read. First, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Then Noah is described as a just man. And lastly, we see he's identified as being perfect in, in the eyes of his generations. What's important about that is that for the very first time in the Bible, a man is referred to as being just. This is the very first time in the Bible any man is called just. An old Reformed Baptist minister by the name of Andrew Fuller, he observes this. Quote, In a legal sense, a just man is one that does good and never sins. But since the fall in the garden, he goes on to add, No such man has existed upon the earth, except, of course, the man Christ Jesus, end quote. And so the obvious question is, when we look at the record of Noah finding grace in the eyes of God, and then he is called a just man, and then he is uh, called perfect, how in the world is he called just? Well, the verse told us, because he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's how he became a just man. The kindness of God was shed upon Noah so that that although Noah was born with the same naturally depraved heart as his evil cousins, the bad Lamech, Jabal, his cousin Tubal-Cain, the gospel, that is the proto-evangelium, that Enoch, that Methuselah, that Lamech would have told to Noah it became real in his heart. It became effectual. In other words, Noah and that phrase found grace by God and thus is a just man was that, guess what? He believed. He believed in the promise. Now friends, this observation by faith Noah, how he obtained that faith to rightly be called a just man and a perfect man ought to be great encouragement for us today. Because it didn't take you very long when we were talking about the historical context of Noah's day to begin to draw parallels with your own context you live in today, did it? Yeah, I know what you were thinking. Wow, it seems like, you know, it's kind of who surrounds us a lot today. It seems like they have the loudest voice. That is, those who reject the one true living God. Those that want to cancel the witness of Christ. Those who only want to hear in academia and those spheres of influence the lies of their own reasoning and their own ideologies. So you're drawing the parallels. But don't miss it. In the cesspool context that Noah lived in, God gave grace and faith to Noah who was surrounded by all of that. Don't you think, friends, that Lamech, uh, his father, and that Methuselah, his grandfather, who was still living, and going all the way back to his ninth great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Adam, who was still alive 
We can't comprehend the geographical distance of how they were spread out, so forth and so on. But don't you think that they were praying every night? Oh, one true living God creator who gave us this promise. With this son about to be born, will you preserve him? Will you show him? Will you give him eyes to see? Will you give him ears to hear? And guess what? God answered the prayer. But not only did God answer the prayer, God used Methuselah. He used Lamech. He used Noah's great-great-grandfather Enoch to demonstrate and live a life of the truth. So Noah wasn't just hearing it on Sunday mornings, friends. He was in a tribal context, a community context where people lived it out in their lives. Could you imagine? Enoch or Noah historically would have been on the scene after Enoch's death. But what we learned about Enoch was he was in the streets declaring to his lost countrymen and the lost people around him the truth of God, so forth and so on. And you know, friends, that Methuselah was watching his father. And you know that Lamech, Enoch's grandchild, who would be the father of Noah, saw his granddaddy. He saw him live in the faith. And so the application is very simple as we see how it was that by faith Noah was moved to be obedient in all these areas. We see a powerful application for us to never underestimate the influence of what God is doing in your life with what you profess you believe and how you live it. Do not waste. Do not waste that witness. Sure, all of us in here raise our hand and make a big list of, oh boy, I tell you, you know, I I tell my kids, uh, you know, do what I say, not as I do, that whole thing, you know, and and I've, you know, made it, I've just ruined it. Well, pick up the pieces and start today. Start start changing that. Start when you have those times having, you know, that, that, that purposeful influence. Hey, you know, son, you saw me yesterday and, uh, I don't know any way to say it, but I was acting like a big fool. Lost my temper. I said this, I said that. You know, son, that's not right. We are God's people. We cannot be controlled by anger. We can't be controlled by bitterness. Yes, yes, I know what they're saying over here about our family, this and this and that. But you know what? We've got to let our hands off their throat. We can't, we can't be controlled by hatred. We said we have to live it, even in our times and mess up. All, when we mess up, beloved, in our lives, it's an opportunity for us. It really is to shine the glory of what God's doing in us through Christ by the faith He's given us. And so I hope we don't miss that. I hope we don't miss the fact that by faith, God implanted in Noah grace of the gospel that his father and his grandfather would have communicated unto him. After this biblical conversion that we simply read in these three words, by faith Noah... After this biblical conversion, notice with me how Noah is described elsewhere in the Bible. A just man, a perfect man. I mentioned in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, he's referenced as a man who walked with God. And interestingly, this walking with God description, it's the very same phrase that describes Enoch. Enoch walked with God. And if you remember when we looked at that, walking with God in the context of looking at Enoch's life wasn't just someone who had been given grace by God to be reconciled with Him and given eyes to see, but it was someone, every step they took, they had the thought of God's will over their life. And wherever they went, wherever they would go, walking with God meant they were consciously thinking, what is God's will in this moment that I'm in? That's what it meant by walking with God. And all of their walks... Enoch's and Noah, as one commentator rightly observes, went directly in the face against the whole current stream of public opinion, customs, all which testifies to the glory and the power of the grace that God had given them. Going against the whole current stream of public opinion and custom of society is the sort of courage that not only Enoch displayed, but also Noah displayed in his life and I want us to consider that now in the text Noah as a courageous saint 
He was a sinner who was saved by grace, just like you, just like me. But also we see in the text that he displayed much courage. Look at the Hebrews 11.7. Noah, by faith, notice what he does. He prepares an ark. He condemns the world that becomes an heir of righteousness by faith. Friends, history, or I should say modern history, it hasn't been very helpful in painting a description, or we should say a proper description of Noah. It just hasn't. For any of you that's been over to the Ark Encounter in Kentucky, let me see a hand. How many of you have been to the Ark? You've seen the exhibits there. Okay, good. So my illustration is going to work. One of my favorite exhibits in there is where they have, it's called the fairy tale Ark. And you walk in this room, and it's like hundreds upon hundreds of children's books that depict Noah as this whimsical, cute little cartoon character, you know, uh, Noah on the Arky Arky, you know, songs, all that stuff. And he just looks happy and everything, you know. All of these wrong depictions of Noah in modern history has done a great injustice to the power of God's transforming a sinner for a useful vessel for His glory to do mighty and great things that require great sacrifice, commitment, and courage. Because if the reality be told, an illustration of Noah probably was a big burly looking guy who had a lot of scars, was probably dirty from sweat and work, And, you know, you could see in his eyes, perhaps, in a good illustration, the fortitude of what God had given him to do. It's beyond description of the courage that it would have taken him to do what he did. And here we have in verse 7, we see a man that because of the saving work of God, exhibited courage to do something that from a mere human perspective seemed not only impossible to build an ark, but it would have seemed insane to build an ark. Look at the text. It tells us, doesn't it, that the building of the ark was not something that a weatherman predicted. It wasn't something that an Algarian culture or society knew because the formation of the clouds was going to come about. No, because it had never rained yet to that time. This is the old world. This is the antediluvian period. Our imaginations can't even comprehend in many ways how that world functioned and what it was like. It had not even rained once. They had not even seen a flood. We learn in the text that Noah is prompted by God's gracious and provisional warning of God Because Noah was one of God's children. He was his son. And he was going to be the servant that God was going to use. So he gives him this warning. Now, to those who are not familiar with all the details, they would read this and they would think, okay, God tells a guy to build a boat. He tells a guy to build an ark. What's the big deal about that? Why should this serve as some sort of example of enduring faith combined with the thread of courage to help us in our day and age and where we're at in our Christian lives. Well, to better appreciate the significance, just we could think about many of them, and I'm sure Nolan or one of the younger people who really have spent their younger education getting into these facts and these apologetics would love to do this, but I'm just going to give you two of why this is so significant and why it should give us courage is that it had never rained. There's never been a flood. Up until this point in the old world, it's been about a thousand years, and you have God telling a man, I'm going to send so much water that's going to destroy the whole earth. And he acts upon it. He not just acts upon it for a week, for a month. He acts upon it for 120 days. Or years, sorry. Thank you, brother. 120 years, friends. He builds this ark. They've never seen rain. So that's the first thing that why this is so significant. For those who want to look at it and go, ah, yeah, Noah, what he did. Yeah, kind of impressive. But Mike, I've seen you do some great things. I don't think you or I would do that, brother. If it never rained, never flooded. Spent 120 years doing the same thing, building something that's never been built before. 
Because God, who cannot be seen, told us to do it. And the second thing about this that makes it so amazing is that the ark was not just any ordinary floating dice, but rather it's one that could sustain life for up to a year, which many scholars believe that's about how long the waters were up before they receded, almost a full year. And it had to be designed to be able to manage such a complex cargo where there's a male and a female of every living animal on the earth. I want you to just let that set for a moment. What would you have done if you were in Noah's position? I think I'd like to know what I would do. I would be questioning. A what? And and how? And and that could that steadfast consistency for 120 years? And it's already been a thousand years since the promise was made. What eyes, friends, would we have seen that calling with? What ears would you have had when that calling came upon you? I hope and I pray that no matter what the Lord calls us to in this historical context we live in, that we're given this type of eyes and this types of ears of courage. Now, why am I using the word courage? I'm I'm honing in on that for a reason. Listen to this definition, textbook definition of courage. Courage is the choice and the willingness to confront agony, to confront pain, danger, uncertainty, or intimidation. Now, remember the historical context this epistle is being written in. People who have accepted Jesus after the cross as the Messiah, they've grown up as Jews who the majority of their community has rejected Jesus as the Messiah, who handed Him over to Pontius Pilate to be crucified because He was blaspheming God. But they've come to say, no, He is God's only begotten Son. And our eternal hope for lies, it depends upon Him. And remember, we don't know all the details, but at least we can tell from the epistle of Hebrews, they're being pressured to compromise that truth. Surely, He can't be the only way. Surely, there's got to be Perhaps justification by faith alone plus your obedience plus getting circumcised plus doing this tradition or that tradition. This is what was unfolded in the early epistles of the church to the church of Galatia elsewhere. The book of Romans. Paul has to labor to show them, no, you're justified by faith alone upon the finished work of Christ on the cross alone. Period. Nothing else. But there was something pressing in on them. And so they, like Noah, they would have confront what? Danger, uncertainty, definitely intimidation. We saw that when we were reading back in the earlier uh, part of chapter 10. They were made a gazing stock. They were made a spectacle. Do you see now the intention, friends, of why this inspired writer is bringing this catalog of people into history before our eyes? Because he wants to glorify the power of God in the life of simple, ill-deserving sinners who are changed by an amazing grace that then, because of that, can go forward and do courageous things. What kind of courageous things? Is God going to call you who He has converted out of a life of lies Darkness, blindness, and sin to do. Well, let me just give you a couple. Maybe this speaks to someone here today. I know when I was listening, how to the four, there's many we could give. One definitely spoke to me this week. He's going to call you to demonstrate a valor. It's a courage and a bravery to face an enemy in a just and a right cause. There are right causes and wrong causes. And there may be in your life, young people, come a time and a day where there will be a thousand on the opposite side. And they, based upon the law of God, the one true living law of God, they will be on the wrong cause and you will stand all alone on the right cause. And you will have to demonstrate courage, valor, as Noah did. 
as everyone walks by him and is mocking him, ridicule him, laughing at him, shorning him. And like Flint, he just keeps building this ark for 120 years. We had nothing in the text, we'll get to it in a moment, just to give us, I appreciated the words from AJ, to see how Noah was preaching the truth of righteousness in the coming judgment. Noah could have been brothers sitting down with other lost cousins and family members weeping with them and saying, listen, I know this sounds crazy. I know that I look like a madman. But in the deepest recesses of your conscience, Tubal Cain, allow me some sanctified imagination here, okay? Historical fiction to prove the illustration. Tubal Cain, you know what you're doing is wrong. You know that that is not right. And if you don't repent, God, the true creator, we haven't seen him for a thousand years. Yet he is long-suffering, he's patient, but judgment will come. And this is what we learned about last week when we were talking about the Philistines. The judgment against them and the Moabites didn't come quickly. God sent a prophet to warn them and to talk to them about it. So you will have to demonstrate perhaps in your life valor and a just cause that will take courage. You will have to have enduring faith standing upon the bedrock foundation of your justification, your adoption in Christ alone. If you tamper with that, you won't last. You may perhaps be called to have physical courage. Well, indeed, you will have to be called to have that. Physical courage to to bravely face physical ailments and pains in our lives. I don't know if I would have saw that or preached about that when I was 25. Uh, You know, I'm 48 now, and, and I'm thinking, I got some physical pains. And it's going to take me, as I get older, and I just buried my father in law this week, it's going to take. Courage, friends, enduring faith as we get to a point, as he did, suffering from cancer to where he cannot even eat and he's going to starve to death. Beloved, who are we kidding here today? It is going to take remarkable courage to not lose hope and give up and fall in the ditch of despondency. You will face that. You will face that. You will. We all are going to face to some degree or another. Some may happen quick. But payday someday will come. Most of us are here. We hope it happens quick. But what about my father-in-law for the last year and a half going through that? You can't even imagine what that's like. It will be called upon you to have courage and what? Not yourself. In Christ, look to Christ, friends. Noah, in these difficult times, no matter, we don't know everything about Noah. There's so much we're going to learn about Noah. Perhaps when he was building the ark, you know what I'm saying? He's dealing with aches and pains, all that good stuff. We don't know everything, friends. But he persevered through it. He persevered through it. Here's one. God's going to call you to have moral courage. I touched on just a moment ago. That's the courage that's the, that's the God-sanctifying ability to be called upon as a Christian to act rightly and to walk humbly in the face of popular opposition. So when you're at whatever social, political rally you're at and you've got other people spitting your face, you have to have moral courage and be Christ to them, as AJ was saying. You have to measure your zeal of truth that you have and speak it in love. When someone's slandering your name, when someone's going around and spreading gossip, you have to have the moral courage like Noah did when everyone was in town was talking about him to understand that, you know what? God knows the truth and vengeance belongs to God. I'm going to keep my head down. I'm going to be humble and I'm going to be faithful and to what He's called me to do. And I'll leave the rest in His hands. Friends, we have to have moral courage in a life of enduring faith. And lastly, of course, we have to have spiritual courage. The kind of courage that quiets the whispers of doubt and discouragement in those times when everything in your life sometimes caused by yourself and everybody in your circle of friends and your family context is telling you, give it up. Give it up. What's the Christian life getting you, really? Young ones, you're going to face this, but you're not immune to this. Us older people, we get it too. 
You're going to have the world beckoning you with enticements of things that are not feeding the spiritual man or woman. It's feeding the carnal man or woman. And you're going to be tempted to say, you know what? Yeah, maybe, I, maybe this is okay. And each person has their own individual enticement. Friends, have spiritual courage. Don't give up. Quiet those whispers of doubt. Follow Christ and follow Him alone. Enduring and courageous faith is not only what enabled Noah, but also our beloved Apostle Paul, inspired by Holy Spirit, he left these precious words in 2 Corinthians 12.10, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. And for when I am weak, he is strong. Noah didn't just fly through this stuff, guys. I know that's what the, the quilt felt patched things look like, you know, or the Noah scenery when we were teaching that. That's not, that's, not, that's not how it happened. Notice with me as we're drawing closer to the close of the message here, notice with me that it's interesting to note that Noah was not raptured up into heaven like his great-great-grandfather Enoch. Why was that? Well, look at the verse there. If he did that, he wouldn't have condemned the world. What does that mean? By his faith in God and God's promises, God's word, by his what seemed to be insane, consistent obedience to God's revelation to him, by this witness, he condemns the world. But he doesn't just condemn the world with his life. We know that he also condemned the world with his lips. How do we know that? Because verse 7 really doesn't say that. Well, we go to Scripture to interpret Scripture. There's some who want to, you know, advocate that, you know, if you just live a Christian life, that in and of itself is what's called lifestyle evangelism, witnessing. That's certainly true, friends. He condemned the world by being obedient to God building the ark. But that wasn't the only way he condemned the world. He also condemned the world with his lips. And we know this from 2 Peter 2, 4, and 5. Remember, there's just a couple scattered places where we get this insight of Noah. Listen to what Peter says as inspired by the Spirit. If God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, this is the world before the flood, Peter says, but he saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness. A preacher of righteousness. What's so significant about that, friends, is that he's condemning the world not only by his actions, but he's communicating truth. He's preaching the righteousness of the promise that was given, the pending judgment coming, even though it's been a thousand years removed with his lips. It's the perfect model for us today in Hebrews 11, verse 7. Enduring faith encompasses courage to live a life that God's called us to live by his grace, by his mercy. It has nothing to do with justification. Don't ever blur those lines. But dear friends, also it calls us to communicate the truth of the faith to others. Isn't it funny that here we are 2,000 years after the cross and the game plan is still the same. The game plan God calls us to enact by His grace is very simple to say. Me and a younger brother were talking about it this week. So many controversies going on in and outside the church, blah, 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 blah. But the game plan is still simple. It's still the same. Live for God's glory. Tell other people about the hope that lies within you. And God will use that according to His own timing and according to His own will. In conclusion, I want to consider the last thing we see here under the heading of Noah as a courageous saint. He became an heir of righteousness. I think it's important here for clarity's sake that we never think that this text is somehow suggesting that Noah had obeyed God building the ark 
condemning the world, preaching righteousness, in order to become an heir of righteousness. Some actually will try to interpret that way. The problem with that is you would have to go listen to, you know, what, 70 more sermons leading up to this point, and you see when we've unpacked the book of Hebrews, the entire stress and theme and doctrinal foundation that he's trying to establish is that it's not like the old covenant, how you're justified. You're not saved by, you're not made righteous by anything. You're adding to the finished work of the high priest, Jesus Christ. You remember? That's what he's trying to establish. So it's absurd to swoop in here in this text and say, and interpret it in such a way that Noah became an heir of righteousness because he obeyed God. Friends, the inspired writer's point here is that Noah inherited the righteousness which is by faith because it's in accordance with faith. Faith and righteousness, they go together. What kind of faith? We've already established that. The faith that God gives. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Tyler has found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Anyone today who's here voluntarily and you weren't drug here in a headlock and you want to be here, you found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You're an heir of righteousness. You, Noah, Abel, Enoch, were all in that great crowd that's mentioned in Romans 8.17 that describes us as heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in Christ's sufferings. In closing, I want to close by drawing your attention. Take Turn your Bibles there to Hebrews 6. You're right there, Hebrews 11. Go to Hebrews 6, verse 12. Hebrews 6, verse 12. Here we have an older brother in the faith. And he's admonishing this church, this first century church. And by preservation and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's admonishing us today. Ye be not slothful, but followers of them. Abel, Enoch, Noah. Followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Beloved, as we close with the life of Noah who was called upon to do the unimaginable and seeing such an enduring faith exhibiting the courage in the face of the opposition he no doubt faced and the uncertainty such it took 120 years to do it so forth and so on what lay beyond the flood I hope and I pray that it encourages us it helps us it in some way reminds us to look to Christ to look to Him for the strength to do whatever we are called to do in the season of life that we may be in now. Today's Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day, moms. It's not easy being a mom. Is it? You think, oh, how can you reduce this thing down to, you know, a Mother's Day. Charles Spurgeon said, if you can't explain the precious doctrines on the level of a child, or applied in the lives of God's people. Why are you preaching? Moms, it's hard. It's hard. It takes some courage. It takes that courage to, to sometimes not to be the popular mom, to do the, you know, this and that. And, and, and you got to be able to, as a, when the age appropriate, I'm not telling everybody how to parent the kids, but you know that, that struggle as they get older, let them walk by themselves and trust God. That takes courage. Right? Same thing with fatherhood. You men in here, you know... You know what God's Word says is our callings and the spheres that influence we have. We won't always be popular. We won't always be liked or loved. But sometimes we'll be. A lot of times we may be. You're a single person in here today. Um, You know the pathway, the chart, the course that's called and mapped out for you in God's Word. Follow that. I was speaking to my son on the way into church today and we were talking about sons and and I found myself saying things, you know, Nolan, if you heed these words, believe me, you will not regret it. I was your age. I know how it is. You're just thinking about next week. You're thinking about, you know, it's a short-sightedness. Got to look long-term. 
got to look long term. God's given you eyes to see the big picture. Utilize that vision, young Christians, old Christians. Utilize that. Constantly have that perception. And may God give us the enduring and the courageous faith that He granted unto the servant Noah to see it unto the end. Let us pray. Oh, gracious God, we come before You, Lord, very humble as we consider the life of Your servant Noah. Humble, Lord, because we are very aware that like Noah, we too, Lord, are only looking unto You with eyes of faith because we were given grace by You. Father, we owe our hope, our joy, our peace of conscience that we read at the very beginning of the message from the Catechism. We owe our joy in the Spirit that sees us through so many things. God, we owe it all to You. We give You glory. We give You honor. Oh, we are here today to confess that You are the one, the true and the living God who has made Yourself known to us in the face of Your Son, Jesus the Christ. And O Christ, we worship You. We bless You. We thank You that You left all the glories above to condescend down into this lowly world which in so many ways and compared to Your infinite glory is a cesspool. And You became a man, took upon Yourself flesh, to die as a substitutionary ransom in the stead and place of sinners. Sinners, according to Romans chapter 5, verse 8, were yet dead in their sins, not even caring about you, looking for you, but you knowing all of those who the Father has given unto you. You died in their place. We thank you, O Christ, and as we are preparing our hearts for coming to the communion table. We worship You. You deserve all the honor and all the glory for every good thing that we have. But most importantly, we thank You for the promise of eternal hope and eternal salvation. This is not our home. And there will come a day, as we mentioned earlier in the message, a payday. Oh, well, these physical bodies will cease to breathe and will be laid back into the ground. But oh, those of us who have been granted imparted with this wonderful, amazing grace that You have given us, O Christ, we will look to You. We will look to You and be with You forever in a glorious heavenly realm, enjoying blessed communion. Oh, give us, we pray, the eyes Noah had to see these things, to never lose sight of them. Give us ears to hear wise words, whether from those in the faith or here gathered on the precious Lord's day. We pray, O Father in heaven, keep us close and near to the cross. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.